If you love to travel, you love cool experiences, you are going to love Viator. Viator is the world's leading travel experience marketplace. And for me, Sun Valley skiing is huge on my bucket list. So I just opened the Viator app, searched Sun Valley, and boom! Custom ski and boot fittings and tickets delivered right to our condo. Pretty unbelievable. Just download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking. One app, over 300,000 experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Graham, I've just mm. been doing one of that. You know them quizzes you get in the glossy magazines? Yeah, yeah. Where you answer a series of questions and it comes up with a sweeping generalization about the state of your life and why it's in such a mess. Exactly, yeah. We all love those. Yeah. I've been doing one, and I thought I'd try it out on you, if you like. Okay. Okay. So, first question. Mm -hmm. Have you ever woke to find the morning didn't come? I mean, the clocks did go back pretty recently as we're recording this, so yes, that has happened. Okay. Um, Was it undelivered with the papers and stolen by someone? I'd I'd never really considered calling the police over daytime savings, but uh, now you mention it, yeah, I do find it a bit of a pain in the ass. Okay. Um, did you find the milkman bound and gagged and shackles round the sun? It's not clear whether they mean the newspaper or the um, <laughs> celestial body. I, I have never found a milkman restrained in any kind of bondage equipment whatsoever because I do not live inside a Robin Asquith film. Okay. Uh, but the shackles around the sun? Shackles around the sun. Um, I mean, it could be like those Welsh supermarkets where they just put plastic screens over non-essential products, and I can't think of a less essential product than that paper. Fair enough. Um, I'll put that down as a sort of yes. <laughs> um, and did the owner of the key turn out to be the one... The girl you had your heart set upon. Well, let's just rewind this a couple of steps. The the woman that I love has been locking up copies of The Sun. It sounds quite likely now you put it like this. And, and Milkman. Don't forget the Milkman. Because just because you didn't find the milkman bound and gagged doesn't mean to say she hadn't bound and gagged the milkman. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it's something we're going to have to talk about. But, you know, I'm a romantic. I believe you can change people. <laughs> All right. Well, that, that concludes the quiz. So I've got you down as mostly yes, you have had it blue. <laughs> directed by pop stars know the podcast is a broader mix of genres from country to hip-hop from science fiction to documentaries I'm sometimes Graham, in the same film sometimes yes. <laughs> i'm graham williamson film critic for horrified and the geek show and i've been joined this week by mick snowden uh, who is also a critic for the geek show uh, and i do films on the geek show uh, on um, pop screen and previously on Simonim Eclectica, and I also do um, Behold and mm. Four Panel. A busy man. I am a busy man. How how the hell I managed to find time to watch the films is is beyond me. I, I often don't. <laughs> Skip that step. Um, <laughs> they call it the old Rex Reed manoeuvre. <laughs> Uh, Yes, our film this week straddles the decades as though they were uh, just a single moped. It's uh, 
based on a book about the 1950s Soho jazz scene that became a cult sensation in the 60s that inspired a director who made his name chronicling the 70s punk scene to make a film which in many ways is quintessentially 1980s. Let us count the ways. It has Michael Mann-style blue lighting for the nighttime scenes. It has a cameo from Sade, and it helped bankrupt Goldcrest Film Studios. It can only be absolute beginners. Wap, wap, wow. Wap, wap, wow, indeed. How have we failed to make that the pop screen sign on? <laughs> Don't worry, wap, you're sure. I, I just, I'm just more of an ideas man. <laughs> <laughs> what you need to ask yourself about this podcast is how do you make it dramatic? How do you make it exciting? <laughs> yes, that that's motivation. <laughs> So, absolute beginners. Absolute beginners. Um, I invited you on this one because I remember walking into a, a room where you were talking to a mutual friend of ours once and you were discussing how you had been to the cinema to see a film where Cheesy What's It was Crepe Suzette. Yes. And I did not know what the hell you were talking about. And now I've watched the film twice. And I do not know what the hell you were talking about. <laughs> so, um, right, let me let me just start by saying that I, I I was sat thinking after re-watching for the podcast Absolute Beginners, mm. and I came to the conclusion that um, Absolute Beginners, the movie, is a bit like the cinematic equivalent of dating Harley Quinn. <laughs> yes. yes. You know it's going to be painful. You know for sure you're going to regret it. Your friends yeah. will tell you not to do it. But every now and then, every four or five years, you just can't help yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see this when it was out at the cinemas? I, I went with my girlfriend at the time. Right. Uh, to see this at the cinema along okay. with four other people across the nation. Um, <laughs> I, went, I, went, <laughs> I went for three reasons, which I will give to you in reverse order of importance. Okay. It was a Saturday and I needed to figure out somewhere to go for a date. The second most important reason, it's got a cracking soundtrack with, really a, lot of, with a lot of my favourite artists involved. Mm. Um. And the most important, which I never shared with my girlfriend at the time. <laughs> so if she's listening, she's going to be furious. And, you know, that's going to be 34 years worth of pent-up rage. Yeah, never stopped me dreaming. I was uh, I was desperately in lust with Patsy Kensett in 1986. <laughs> now, it, it can be hard looking back from the perspective of her 94th marriage to really know what Patsy Kensett's I've position in the world was. I've got a vague idea that I spent a week married to her in 1994. <laughs> right. <laughs> so what, what, was, what was her status at the time? What was Patsy Kensett known for? What was Patsy Kensett known for? Patsy Kensett had just burst onto the... Well, she'd had a brief moment of fame back in the sort of mid-70s. Mm. She was the girl in the Bird's Eye P advert who told you that the peas went... The launch pad for so many a career. Absolutely. Um, and then she sort of went quiet. I don't know, maybe... She was probably about five or six when she did that. Um so she maybe went off and, I don't know, went and worked on a kibbutz somewhere or something like that. You know, the kind of thing yeah. these, these stars do. And then she returned um, to the spotlight with a band called okay. Eighth Wonder. Right. Uh, that had formed in 1983. Uh, she formed it with her brother, who made her audition... <laughs> right. <laughs> That's a hard taskmaster. <laughs> um, 
So they've been playing in this band. It was called Spice originally. Um, ahead of its time. Way ahead in the of 90s, time. that could have been big. <laughs> and in 1984, uh, they had a bit of a split. Um, one member left the band and a new keyboard player came in. They renamed themselves Eighth Wonder and they got a recording contract um, and had a, a couple of minor sort of chart-troubling efforts. Mm. Uh, and between sort of 86 and 88, they could almost do no wrong. They weren't massive, you know, they weren't uh, troubling the top ten all the time. Mm. But they... Um, they, they did a collaboration with Pet Shop Boys, I'm Not Scared, um, which which got into the top ten. Um, they appear to have been very big in Japan. Ah, weren't we all? <laughs> but the, I think I think the appeal of them was that they were just a... It was that time in the 80s, that sort of mid to late 80s, where these bands started appearing that had these pouting sex kittens at the front. Hmm. Uh, Wendy James in Transvision Vamp, Patsy Kenzer in Eighth Wonder. And that's when I fell in lust with her, watching her on top of the pops. Um, and of course, Eighth Wonder do have a track on the soundtrack for... Um, they do. The beginners. Yeah, should we talk about that soundtrack? Because you've mentioned that it is full of bangers. It is. It is. It's weird. It's Because I'm not a huge fan of musicals. Hmm. But usually I find that most musicals have got one or two numbers that are absolute bangers. Yeah. And the rest are sort of refrains and themes and meh. Yeah. But this one, even the themes and refrains are absolute bangers. <laughs> uh, so let's let's have a look. We've got, at the top of the shop, absolute beginners. I, I feel like, because he's in the movie, I feel like I should do this in the style of Alan Freeman. Right, but... yes. If, if you want, it wasn't the impersonation I expected you to go for. But that's all right. <laughs> but yeah, we open with track one, Absolute Beginners, over the opening credits, which yeah. is probably, at the time, Bowie's best work for a number of years. Absolutely, yeah. I'm glad you said that, because... I think this will probably be the episode of Pop Screen where we talk about David Bowie the least, uh, including when we talk about films that he doesn't appear in. Uh, <laughs> but the because... spirit of David Bowie was always... Always over. presiding, yeah. I've always felt Summer Holiday was technically <laughs> a David Bowie homage. Um but this was probably the least interesting part of his career. He'd made Let's Dance, it had been a sensation. He'd made Tonight, it had tanked. Uh, Tonight is kind of hilarious because it had the best first week sales of, I think, his career ever. Yeah. And then the, the second, third and fourth and the rest of the week sales, that's where the problem started. <laughs> In many ways, letting people hear the album was his big career misstep. Yeah. Um, so he took a few years off. He came back with an album, Never Let Me Down, that is also not great. But in between, weirdly enough, he made some of his most enduring appearances outside music. He did Labyrinth, mm -hmm. which is one of those things that even people who aren't Bowie fans know that he did. Yeah, And he did the theme song to this which as you say has lasted in a way that nothing on tonight or never let me down has yeah and he's got two bangers on this mm -hmm. um as, uh, quite apart from stealing quite significant sections of the film as vendor's partners yes the ad man um but yeah absolute beginners and that's motivation that's motivation is kind of an interesting one. I think my problem with it is maybe a bit the production in that everything starts off at 11. So when it gets to the chorus, which is not a bad chorus, it's just like, oh, don't have anything to do. I just keep on shouting. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, nowhere to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, Colin, I want you to use your imagination and then peek. <laughs> yes <laughs> literally at one point as they climb Mount Everest 
Yes. Yeah. Listeners, if you've ever wanted to see David Bowie singing while climbing Mount Everest, this is really the only shot you've got. Whilst also standing on top of a rotating globe. Which, which he levitates to which the he top levitate, of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and whilst, um, you know, he starts the whole thing off dancing on a giant typewriter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, if there's no other reason to watch this film, Bowie on a typewriter. It's an incredible moment. That's what they should have called the film. (laughs) Called Crest Studios presents Boy on a Typewriter. (laughs) Yeah, I'd have watched it. To be fair, they could still have put the word loosely at the beginning of based on (laughs) a book bag. Because we should... (laughs) We'll we'll cover the soundtrack and then I'll come back to the biggest problem with the film. Mm, mm -hmm. So... um, so we've got Killer Blow by Shade. Yeah. Uh, a cameo appearance that's, you know, she had a voice that blew you away. Yeah. Um, did Shade. And... I rather liked that. I, I'd, I'd sort of dismissed Shade a bit as smooth FM kind of fodder. But... Even, even at the time, she was kind of dismissed as coffee table music. You know, Let her, her uh, sweetest taboo, I think, was her big album. Um mm. And it was it was deemed to be the kind of thing that trendy hipsters of the time would have on their coffee table. They'd never like take it out of the shrink wrap. It'd just be there to show that they were into music and not yeah. just pop. Yeah. Because there it had that great... sophisticated jazz air to it. There is a great anecdote by Paul Morley about that whole kind of coffeehouse jazz revival in the early to mid 80s. He said, It was just, I was working on the NME and Robert Elms just ran in, said, I found out this great new music, guys. It's called jazz. I thought, okay, let's put some Miles Davis on the stereo and see if he can cope with that. Well, this is this is it. I mean, at the time, there was a lot of jazz influences out there. You know, Paul Weller had. The next track up, Have You Ever Had It Blue by the Style Council. The Style Council have been experimenting with a bit of blues, a bit of jazz, um, almost anything that the jam hadn't done, in fact. Yeah, um, yeah. And Have You Ever Had It Blue, the Style Council's uh, submission for for this, is mm. probably one of their weakest singles, but it's still a banger. I was going to say, I really like Have You Ever Had It Blue. And in fact... I like the style council in general, and it's, Mm. I suppose, part of the generational thing I should declare is that when I was starting to get into pop music, it was the mid-90s, which is exactly the wrong point to appreciate anything from 10 years ago. It's too old to be cool, but it's not old enough to be retro. Yeah. So the received wisdom was, you know, Sade is garbage, Style Council are garbage. And it took me a while to sort of push through that. But I do really like the Style Council yeah. now. And the, and the 90s um, started uh, with Polydor sacking Paul Weller. Right. Effectively. Which uh, turned out to be exactly the wrong time to do that, didn't well, it? Well, yeah, because, um, well, 1989, to be precise, they sacked Paul Weller, because he released yeah. the Style Council's, uh, oh, well, he, he produced the Style Council's um, Modernism, A New Decade album, mm. which never saw release until a retrospective box set a few years later. In um, an even newer decade. And, and you know, you know we've, we've already had the headline... Um, Bowie on a typewriter. Mm. The Style Council's Garage album. Ah, yes. Yeah. There you go. I'll leave you with that. I'll let you just go through that. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, uh, Devil's Advocate, not a bad idea. One of the peculiarities of the British charts at this time is that we were a massive early adopter of house and techno. The yeah. Americans think it was invented in about 2012 by Zac Efron. Yeah. But uh, we were right there from the beginning. I was one of the first DJs to play Chicago house music, you know. Wow, really? Mm. Back That's in quite a claim. 86. Oh, mm. the year this song came out. Funny. But yeah, for, for me, as a Style Council fan who followed them right from the sort of gestation period up to, up, up to the, the end... Mm. Um, have you ever had it blue? For me, it was a weak track because it's effectively just 
new lyrics to um, Everything to Lose from the Our Favourite Shop album. Right, right. So that's why it feels like it's a weaker track. Mm. Um, but, you know, we've got Paul Weller. We've had David Bowie. Shall yeah. We should so, point out, too, that all this is being produced by Clive Langer and Alan Winstanley, who at the time were the only people to go to if you wanted music that was like, on the one hand, big, bright pop music, but on the other hand, was played on live instruments and was not as ruthlessly synthesized as the kind of new yeah. romantic techno pop of the time so they did the early madness albums they did punch the clock by elvis yeah. costello flood by they might be giants to Rayet by dexy's midnight runners it's a hell of a legacy yeah so um we'll we'll leave the giants of music behind for a minute while we look at the next track quiet life by ray davis ray bloody davis and it's beautiful, isn't it? Stephen Woolley, the producer, actually had this filmed first so that if anyone expressed any scepticism about financing a movie whose core idea is, let's face it, mad, mm. uh, he would just show them this clip of Ray Davies singing this song while wandering through a huge cutaway house <laughs> set of the kind that Wes Anderson now uses. <laughs> it's brilliant. It's brilliant. The checkbooks would open and you can absolutely see why. Yeah. Uh, then we've got Vavavoom uh, by Gil Evans, um, which is more of a sort of instrumental sort of chase sequence thing that's used throughout the film and revisited quite a lot. Mm. Um, then we've got That's Motivation by Bowie. Having It All by Eighth Wonder featuring Patsy Kensett, apparently. Oh, I mean, right. she was the lead singer of Eighth Wonder. And bearing in mind that the rest of the band don't appear in the film, and she does. It's a pretty easy way <laughs> to get a featured by credit, isn't it? Led Zeppelin <laughs> featuring Robert Plant. <laughs> uh, Rodrigo Bay, Working Week, one of the, probably one of the, the weaker tracks, but, you know, fits into the the oeuvre that they're yeah. trying to get. Um, selling Out, which is, if you're going to have a house band at your party, why not have Slim Gayard? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's uh, they pulled some strings to get that guy round for the evening. Yeah, and, uh, and the thing is, if you don't fancy watching an hour and three quarters of Absolute Beginners, and you mm. just want the basic bare bones of the plot described to you, listen to yeah. Selling Out, because it's basically there. Yes, yeah. I mean, without even, even having met the woman, he mentions Crepe Suzette in the... <laughs> what a lucky guess. <laughs> that blonde over there, I'm going to go out on a limb and say she's called Crepe Suzette. <laughs> Definitely some kind of patisserie product, I'm <laughs> thinking. <laughs> Luckily, it also rhymes with my other lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then in, in terms of uh, the, the vocal stuff, um, it's rounded out with Riot City, um, which is the music they use as the backdrop to the, the race riots. Mm. But Jerry Dammers, Jerry bloody Dammers. <laughs> I mean, honestly, yeah. We should so, probably talk about the plot a bit here because I think for uninitiated yeah. listeners, the fact that we've moved from talking about a mid-80s jazz musical to talk about race riots is pretty weird. Whereas, don't worry, listeners, in the context of the film, it makes even less sense. But, <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's got this... Um, what was the author of the book called again? Colin McInnes. Colin McInnes. And that's why our hero is called Colin, because it, it kind of... so. Can I can I cover the book? Yes, yes, yeah. please do. Yeah. So uh, the book, uh, Absolute Beginners, is one of those books where you know it's had an impression on you because you can remember the opening line. Yeah. It was the fag end of an Indian summer. And that just tells you all you need to know about the setting. Yeah. yeah. It's part of a trilogy called the London Trilogy. And it's mm. the first one in the trilogy. And it, it basically uh, 
is a semi-autobiographical um, novel about growing up as what is effectively the first teenagers. Mm. Um, it's 1958 in London. You've got the older generation are still reeling from the effects of rationing and World War II and all the rest of it. Um, and still very much that stiff upper lip Brit reserved nation. Mm. Um, respectability is king for them. But you've got this new generation that are young and have money, which is a dangerous combination. Yes. Um, some of them spend it on clothes. Some of them spend it on sex. Mm -hmm. Some of them provide the sex. Um, and some of them just enjoy life. Yeah. Um, what it centers on is the, the tensions. So the book focuses on the generational tensions, a bit mm. like um, the Who focus on in um, Jimmy's story in Quadrophenia. Um, but it also features racial tensions because Colin is part of this teenage group and he mixes with um, blacks, Italians, the whole melting pot of cultural um, sort of dissonance, really, within um, mm. within London at the time. But it's a it's a melting pot where everything works. Now, uh, is that just to cut in? Is that sort of how it's treated in the books? One thing I could not decide on watching absolute beginners the film again mm. is how sheltered colin is meant to be he has a line at the beginning where he says let me see uh what it is oh here nobody cared where you came from or what's your color now seeing as the film ends with the 1958 notting hill race riots it's obvious that quite a lot of people actually do care where you came from and what your colour is. So yeah, is and that I think, meant I think to be ironic? This is the thing that this is the thing that grates with me um, about the movie. Mm. Um, it lurches from plot point to plot point in the book. So from Colin's point of view, yeah. he he's actually less a lot less sort of sheltered than I was when I was you know, some, what, 20 years later, growing up as an 11-year-old in, in Leeds, right? Mm. So by the time I was 11, I still hadn't met anyone who wasn't white. I'd seen them from afar, but I'd not actually spoken to anybody. Yeah, um, yeah. Homosexuality was not a thing that anybody knew about. Sort of darkly whispered about, wasn't it, back in? Uh, it was the kind point. of it was the kind of thing that adult mouth the words, they mouth. The words. <laughs> yes, <laughs> in a very Les Dawson type way. Um, <laughs> but in 1958, it was even more so for society in general. I mean, homosexuality was still illegal. Yeah. Um, the Wolfenden report had just come out a year before. Yeah, so um, that's the book sort of covers the fact that these teenagers are eschewing the sort of stereotyping of their parents, mm. and it's it's about it's about that isolation. But it's a different type of isolation. It's not like he's isolated because he's shut in his room and only working with his within his own ethnic um, bracket yeah. or his own yeah. sexual bracket. It's he's isolated because he's happy mixing with all these people. The fabulous Hoplite and um, mm. Mister Cool—they're all his friends. Um, but then when it comes to it. Do they see him as one of them or one of the enemy? Yeah. And I think the problem is that the book, obviously, the, uh, and the, the timeline is the same in the book. 
Mm. So it does end with those race riots. But, you know, you've got, you know, maybe a week to read the book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Know? You've got an hour and three quarters here. And this is the problem for me um, with Absolute Beginners. It does hit the main plot points of the book, but it misses out so much. Because the yeah. wizard, Mr. Cool, fabulous hoplite, are uh, basically very, 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 very minor characters in the in the film. I was going to say, I mean, it's got this incredible tracking shot at the start, which is patterned on the opening to Expresso Bongo, another much older movie about the older mm. generation exploiting the 50s teenage culture. And Colin goes through it, pointing out all of these characters that you've just mentioned in a very kind of Scorsese introduction. Although a few years before Scorsese started doing <laughs> this in stuff like Goodfellas, uh, yeah. so that's quite impressive. But then after that, as you say, they, they barely register. The main impression I got of Mr. Cool is there's a nice gag after Sade sings the words killer blow and it cuts to him lighting a joint, which yeah. is a pretty good gag, but <laughs> it, it doesn't make him much of a character. No, and, and and this is the problem because, like I say, Mr. Cool, um, Fabulous Hoplite, they're key characters. You know, it's it's their reactions to various events that, yeah. that cause the conflict for Colin. That and his love for Crips who's that and this crazy world that she's falling into. And my, my problem with the film's treatment of the book is it's not clear what Julian Temple's trying for. Because yeah. I, I, I think it that opening scene that you mentioned is a scene that seems to have been put together at great expense just to say mm -hmm. Welcome to 1958. Yeah. Which you could have done with a caption that said, London, <laughs> 1958. Yes. Uh, and Julian Temple seems to have been torn between doing a sort of gritty, realistic rock opera mm. and a colourful Busby Barclay spectacular. Yeah, I mean... Shall we talk a bit about Temple now? Because I think looking at his career to date might cast a bit of light on this. Mm. This is someone whose first film was The Great Rock and Roll Swindle in 1979. And he had become known as a chronicler of subcultures that other directors and certainly film studios struggle to reach. He'd done The Secret Policeman's Other Ball for Amnesty International. He'd done films at uh, the comic strip nightclub when that was showcasing the work of people like Alexi Sale and Rick Mayle and Adrian Edmondson before they got on TV. Yeah. So he'd done pretty well for himself and he was breaking through a bit more into the pop arena with promos for bands like ABC and also the incredibly indulgent and it must be said incredibly entertaining short film that Bowie made to produce Blue Jean. Yeah. So all that's going well. I think part of the thing with Absolute Beginners is that even though it does lavish a lot of attention on the kind of jazz subculture and jazz music and modern jazz revivalists like Sade and the Style Council. It's really a movie about punk. It is a movie about how Julian Temple felt to have been chronicling what seemed like a massively subversive movement that ended up becoming a haircut and a T-shirt once it had been through the media machine. Yeah. Even the summer, apparently the summer of 58 wasn't that hot, but the summer of 77 famously was. Yeah. And there is a real investment in the... It's, it's one of the few movie musicals that really has a lot to do with the weather. There's a lot of weather stuff in here. There is, yeah. And this is it. There's so many mismatches in it. Colin mm. Jevons is difficult to believe as a white supremacist. Yeah, that is true. Although... <laughs> some, some of the, all too believable. <laughs> completely, yeah. And I think Bruce Payne as Flicker is really intimidating in this movie. Yeah. 
but it's the, it's just the sort of I don't know I don't know where he was. It's tonally okay. it's tonally all over the place. Yeah, for, yeah. For for example, um, it it works having David Bowie. Uh, doing that uh, that's motivation in that Busby Barkley giant yeah. typewriter style. Brilliant. That was fantastic. Yeah. It works having Patsy Kensit sing Having It All mm. in the cafe to Colin. In a sort of sultry Marilyn Monroe kind of number. Yeah. Yeah. Because like you get in film musicals, you know, like Marlon Brando singing in Guys and Dolls, right? Yes. Yeah. It's the character singing the song. Yeah. We then get a scene walking over a bridge where Eddie O'Connell lip syncs to Paul Weller singing, Have You Ever Had It Blue? <laughs> yeah. That, that to me, was the moment where I thought, oh, right, I can see the problem here because having it all is a very slow number. Uh, have you ever felt blue is a pretty slow number? Pretty soon afterwards, you've got the Ray Davies number, which is also pretty slow. And this is all in like the first half of the yeah. film. And it is just a momentum killer. I get the feeling that Temple wanted to make a musical, but he hadn't studied how musicals structure their songs at and, all. And, and the other thing is, if you, if you look at classic musicals, and you know, I'm no expert on musicals. I cited Guys and Dolls because I've been in it. But, you right. <laughs> We're getting so much background information about you this week. I'm you enjoying are, this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, the thing about um, musicals is characters and storylines tend to have themes and refrains that weave through. So mm. you, your foreshadowing, if you like, comes through a, a musical melody. You yeah. know, you know that the bad guy's about to enter because his refrain starts playing over the top of the end of a song and stuff like that. Yeah. So we have um, Colin miming Have You Ever Had It Blue as he shares with the audience his pain over Crip Suzette running off and, you know, leaving him behind to follow a career. Yeah. We then also have the refrain of Have You Ever Had It Blue playing in the background to the start of the attack on the um, little Napoli black ghetto. Yeah. By the developers. And no. Yeah. <laughs> you can't. No. I, I think saying that the black community of little Napoli were having it blue at this point is a bit of an understatement. A little bit of an understatement. I, I don't think they cared where the milkman was at that point. <laughs> as long as he wasn't providing ammo to the racists. <laughs> but that's the thing. Watching it a second time, I think this is, if you had to pinpoint one problem that is at the root of it, it is unfortunately that kind of compilation album approach to the soundtrack, mm. even though it did produce, as you said, a great compilation album. There is a reason why most musicals have a score written by about two people. You yeah. know, it is important to have that symphonic effect, that sense that everything yeah. is unified, That's everything it. is tied yeah. together. In this, Absolute Beginners is a film where you can go from listening to Shardy to listening to Ed Tudor Paul within Which the doesn't appear on the scenes. soundtrack. Doesn't it? No. That's weird, because I always pick out Ted's Not Dead, the Ed Tudor Paul song, as probably the, the musical number that works best, I think. <laughs> and it's not on the album. But you're right, it's, it, it's the one that actually... Because um, there's... There's times where it looks like Temple is trying to emulate something like West Side Story, which mm. again, it's that kind of West Side Story, gang warfare portrayed in a musical. Yeah, right? it shouldn't work, but it does. Guys and Dolls, it's about sleazy gamblers hoodwinking a mission so that they've got yep. somewhere to run their game. Shouldn't yep. work as a musical, but it does. Race riots shouldn't work as a musical, and it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs>
And Temple, I think, knows this because there's a South Bank show documentary about the making of Absolute Beginners, which is still available on YouTube. And he says, you know, to his credit, that musicals absolutely can and do take on darker subject matter. You know, yeah. Cabaret is about the rise of fascism. Yeah. It doesn't get darker than that. But I think the difference between Temple and Bob Fosse is that in Fosse's films, you always know where the boundaries of reality and fantasy are. You always know that, say, Sweet Charity is a, a, the kind of musical where people will just walk onto the street and burst into song, and it establishes itself as that yeah. from the start. And Cabaret isn't. Cabaret is the sort of musical where people sing if they're on a stage. Yeah. And not only does Temple not really establish this, I also think he doesn't really care. No. It's the way I look at it, and it's interesting that you mentioned the compilation album approach to the to the soundtrack, mm -hmm. because that's what it it feels like a loose collection of pop videos linked yeah. by a vague narrative. Yeah, because the actual set pieces having it all, um, the the dance she does when she um, accidentally slips on the stage. If you watch this as a series of YouTube videos, it's spot on. You will have yeah. no idea why this film flopped. No. Uh, the, the the classic Bowie on a typewriter, that's fantastic. Gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. Um, and as individual pop videos, they would work with the exception of Colin McInnes doing his style council miming. They did a yeah. separate video for that. That was the one... <laughs> that was the one single that got released from the soundtrack that didn't have a video directly lifted from the um, yeah. film. <sighs> but, yeah. And that can work. That, that idea of linking a series of pop videos together can work as long as the narrative linking them is strong enough. Yeah. Um, and absolutely from the point of view of trying to drum up... Um, funding and stuff like that if you get those recorded and in the bag yeah Davis dancing around the house with a hoover i mean God, i'd give you the money on. there and then you wouldn't <laughs> yes. even have to show me the clip yeah um and there's some really random cameos as well some of them, I, I think, have kind of a cheeky appeal. Like, if you're making a movie about the senior side of London and your hero's mum is a bit of a tart and the whole thing is revolves around a crooked property developer, casting Mandy Vice Davies <laughs> as his mum is hilarious. <laughs> that is brilliant. Yeah. Um, an, an early appearance by Bruno Tonioli as well. Yes, there are some fascinating before they were famous appearances in here, aren't there? I think one of the kids who's running away from the riots, if memory serves, is a young Carmen Ajogo, who yeah, was later so. play yeah. Caress uh, Scott King in Selma. And you've got <laughs> you've got Robbie Coltrane playing the Italian coffee shop owner. Lovely, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean. <laughs> This, but this was this was also made at a time where adding the words and Stephen Burkoff to the poster mm. was pretty much printing cash. Yeah, he'd been in huge, huge blockbusters around the time. And he had a reputation for not, not associating with anything that was poor or tawdry or... Where did that reputation go? Because uh, <laughs> it did not last very long it didn't. but he had that reputation didn't he for being a very serious and um studied oh, yeah. actor stage wise i think burkoff is one of britain british theater's living geniuses i think he's an absolutely incredible talent and i think he's good in this do you know my problem with the riot stuff is that it reverts to the earlier style if yeah. you imagine Absolute Beginners as a movie which starts off where you've got this kind of idealistic hero and every time he sees a knife fight, he imagines it as this acrobatic dance routine. If you imagine it as a movie that starts off like that and ends with grubby, real-life racist violence, yeah. 
the movie is actually brilliant. But Temple goes back. He makes that mm. bass riot scene into a dance number, and you just think, well... A, we've seen this. B, it's in appalling taste. I mean, I think that if you made a movie now about the 1958 Notting Hill race riots and your hero <laughs> was this bland white guy who imagined the whole thing as a big dance number, you would be crucified for that. And I think the people who were angry would have a bloody good point, exactly. to be honest. Yeah. Um, and you think, you know, how did they manage to get James Fox attached to it? Yeah, that is... Lawrence, that, I could believe. Well, yeah, I mean, he's, he's, <laughs> there a few roles later on in the film that I think he would be very good at, <laughs> let's put it that way. He, he currently seems to be modelling himself on the Stephen Burkhoff character. <laughs> he does. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, some very odd casting decisions here. Do you know what the thing that... Uh, we've talked a lot about putting it alongside things that were happening at the time and that is an approach that I really love to some of these films because mm. pop is an ephemeral thing and part of the problem with making pop movies is that a movie takes at best two years to make Yeah, that can be the whole lifespan of a pop star that burns out in that context but the thing that I think is most fatal to absolute beginners is if you consider that at the same in the same year that this was released the big television sensation of 1986 was the singing detective yeah and the singing detective is a meta musical about dark themes and violence that gets right everything that absolute beginners gets wrong it has a much more complex structure much more layers of fantasy and reality are in it and yet, when you watch it, you were never confused about what level of reality you're looking at. Yeah. I'm just looking at the I'm just looking at the Wikipedia page for the cast list. Mm, it's and, something, isn't it? And out of your what I would call your key characters, Eddie O'Connell is the only one who doesn't have his own Wikipedia entry, and seems to have <laughs> only been cast. Because he bore a passing resemblance that might have made him a young David Bowie. Yeah. I mean, it's not a great method of, uh, of doing things, is it? No. Uh, it, it, we, we've talked at great length on Cinema Eclectica about Valerian and the thousand astral <laughs> bollocks or whatever. You're triggering me called. again. Triggering me. <laughs> I think this has the same problem. It is a film where everything works except the central duo. Yeah. Yeah, there doesn't seem uh, to be any real chemistry between O'Connell and Kenzet. Yeah, I think they are both honestly pretty wooden. Mm. She I has the advantage of being gorgeous. You know, as as this uh, podcast bisexual correspondent, I'd like to say it's, it's a problem they both share of being incredibly charismatic and appealing until you ask them to like walk across the room or <laughs> open their mouth or anything complex like that. Heaven forbid they should walk and talk. <laughs> yes, Lyndon Baines Johnson was right. <laughs> but yeah, um, I, I think it's less of a problem with this than it was with Valerian because Valerian keeps insisting that its heroes are actually really charismatic and exciting and compelling. Whereas I, I don't think Julian Temple really cares about Colin and Suzette. I think he just wants them as a device to link the various set pieces that he has in mind, yeah. a task yeah. which they are still not up to. <laughs> It's interesting to see the trajectory of Julian Temple's career, it has to be said. I think he's doing really exciting work now. Um, well, in, you know, in 2009, he, he worked with Ray Davis again on a, a video for Postcard of London. Mm -hmm. uh, he did some work with Baby Shambles and the Scissor Sisters. And, mean, of course, all... and of course, S Club 7 and S Club Juniors. Yeah, S Club Juniors, 
the living fulfillment of the prophecy he made with Lionel Blair's character <laughs> in Absolute Beginners. Yes. <laughs> they really go all out to make that character creepy, doesn't he? When yeah. he's introduced, he's got a copy of Scouting for Boys <laughs> on his desk. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and this is, this is the other problem for me. Um, I mean, I had to actually look up um, whether Blue Palace existed in 1958. Yeah. It turns out they did. They've been around since 1886 or something. Right. Yeah. But um, everything is so on the nose, isn't it? it yeah, it's, yeah. If this was a silent movie, there would be a caption card during every shot that said, we're talking about race. Yes. We're talking about homosexuality. The advertising industry is quite shallow. <laughs> I love, we say that, but Mad Men got seven fucking CVs out of labouring that point. <laughs> but did it do it by using engaging characters? No. Next oh, right. question. Uh, uh, Mad <laughs> Men is like the it. ultimate... It's the ultimate sacred cow from this so-called golden age of television for me. I hate it so much. Right. Um, but that's that's a discussion for another time. Indeed. Yeah, it, it's true. I think Temple's method is always that he finds hundreds of ideas that fascinate him and just smashes them together. Yeah. And that's why I like some of the stuff he's doing now, because he tends to work in documentaries where that is less of a crime than in narrative fiction. Yeah, I, I, I do get the impression that when he was watching the rushes of Absolute Beginners, if he felt that his point wasn't going to, getting across in the visuals, he would just go away and get a bigger hammer. <laughs> yes. I mean, <laughs> this is a film where Stephen Burkoff screaming, keep Britain white at the top of his lungs is, is like not even cracking the top 20 least blunderbussy elements of the yeah. film. And actually, I mean, stripping away the subject matter, that's mm. actually, the, the, the actual speech he makes is quite Shakespearean, isn't it? It's, it's done in in rhyming couplets and it's it's very well done. You yeah. know, it's only halfway through that you think, oh, that's more than just a rhythmic speaker. It also has, I think, one of the few unstressed points in the film, one of the film's only subtleties, <laughs> which is that he keeps saying, uh, give me your hands, which if you're a Bowie fan and you're watching this, so it's quite likely yeah. uh, you'll recognise that as a line from Rock and Roll Suicide. Uh, Bowie's Ziggy Eva was all about the links between demagoguery and rock stardom. Yeah. So it's almost like... Burkhoff's character is the, the prophet of a coming moment. Not only is he harking ahead to like Enoch Powell and all those other populist politicians of the 60s, he's yeah. also kind of harking ahead to rock and roll, the scene that would make jazz obsolete. Yeah. And that's, that's the other thing. Going back to the book, mm. one of the themes of the book is that uh, it's about the start of the teenager cult before it separates it. That's the thing with the, the race element and the acceptance, the, the race and the sexuality stuff. Mm. It's acceptance because the cult is teenagers. Yeah. Yeah. That's the subculture that's focused on. The London trilogy goes through to sort of like the early to mid 60s where the, the teenage subculture then shatters into its constituent pieces of mods, rockers, yeah, beatniks, yeah. etc. And that's the, the, the sort of chinks in the armour start in the, in the absolute beginner's novel. Yeah. But, again, that's not what you get. You get this mishmash of, you know, the only sort of I do quite like the scene where Colin's sort of mocking Ed the Ted. Yeah, that I was going to mention that as kind of a hint of that theme. Yeah, um, but there's too much emphasis. I feel it looks too mod in 1958. Mm. 
It looks too. Temple's 1958 looks too 1964. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think that's sort of strengthened by having the likes of Ray Davis involved as well. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's an element where it's always meant to be a kind of retro-futuristic fantasy of the late 50s, which is you know why they have mm. Patsy Kensit and Paul Weller on the soundtrack rather than just going with artists from the time. Yeah. But yeah, if your whole novel is about anthropologically detailing a point in history where things change, that's a big risk to take. Yeah. Despite this, I should say, I've, I've, when I first watched it, I, I thought it was better than its reputation. I, and maybe it's Stockholm Syndrome, but I found myself enjoying it again this it, time. Well, this is, this is why I did the, the analogy at the beginning. I, it is a film that you can watch and enjoy yeah. if you're willing to sit there and ignore its faults. And you mentioned uh, Valerian and the City yeah. of a Thousand Planets earlier. That is a film which I can watch on a variety of streaming services at the moment for free. I have not revisited that yes. since I went to see it at the cinema for Eclectica. It's it's impressive that you come back to us, to be honest. <laughs> well, that's that's another one where you know I've got an affinity with the the source material. Yeah, and a filmmaker that, generally speaking, I can't think of another film he's done that I didn't enjoy. Yeah. Um, that it just didn't work. I probably will watch Valerian at some point in the future, even if it's just because the missus goes, oh, I haven't seen that. Yeah. Um, but absolute beginners, like I say, about every five to ten years I'll go, oh, do you know, I want to see Ray Davis cavorting around a house with a vacuum cleaner again. Yeah. I want to see... <laughs> I want to see Eve Ferret watching her friend on TV. I want to see yes. Tommy Cover have his wig taken off. <laughs> There's loads of really charming details in it. Yeah. Uh, and I think if you're going to make a film that doesn't work, it's better if the kind of surface of it is what isn't holding. Yeah. I would rather watch a wildly uneven film that is full of good ideas than watch a professional solid film that just doesn't have enough thought put into it. I mean, the, the thing with this film, the thing with this film is if we take, if, if, if you wrote down a list of your favourite bits from this film... It'd be a pretty long list, honestly. And, and, and cut out the bits that aren't on that list. Yeah. You'd have a, a pretty enjoyable film that made no sense. You'd have what I believe the kids are calling a visual album. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, it would make no sense, but it it would be enjoyable to watch. Yeah. If you leave it as it is, it's all right. <laughs> it's, yeah. It, it, it's not as bad as people make out. I must say, I found the through line of the plot a lot clearer on the second viewing. Yeah. Once you cotton on that it, it has this fantastically cynical idea where it seems like Vendis Partners and his firm are basically encouraging race riots so mm. that you know a, a housing development can be successfully cleared and replaced with luxury flats that even he admits are hideous, which is a brilliant plot line. It's like something out of David Peace's Red and, Riding novels. It's another bit of genius as well. Mm. Whether it came from the whether it came from Bowie the actor or Temple the director, but that the veneer of Bendis partner slips. Yes, because yes. he's talking very much like this. Yeah, and goes now it, it's horrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Boy, that is worked the... at an advertising agency in the very early sixties as an intern before yeah. he started his singing career, and he said, "Pat." The attraction was it was that I just hated all those guys with mid-Atlantic accents and I just wanted to stick the knife in them a bit. <laughs> but yeah, so another bit of trivia for you related to the yeah. absolute beginners. So Paul Weller, of course, wrote Have You Ever Had It Blue? Mm. Um, 
for the soundtrack of Absolute Beginners based on the novel Colin uh, by Colin McInnes that had inspired Paul Weller to write a track called Absolute, Absolute Beginners, Beginners when yes. he was in the jam that never got to u- be, be used on this. Weird that, isn't it? I can only assume there's some sort of record company snafu that stopped that happening. It's a good song, Absolute Beginners. It is. I like that late period sort of soul era of the jam an awful lot. Uh, I know it's not a lot of jam fans' idea of like their pinnacle, but I think there's some great songs there. Yeah. So, Absolute Beginners. Absolute beginners. Yeah, I mean, the quote that I found when I was researching this, which I think sums a lot of it up, is that Christopher Wicking, who worked as as the screenwriter on some of the very early drafts, said there were always arguments about whether the musical numbers should move the plot forward or establish the characters. And... I think they went pretty heavily for the establish the characters approach at the cost of any kind of momentum that the film should have. Yeah. Going back to what we were saying about some of the the background characters, you get a lot of interaction with Wizard. You get a lot of interaction with Hippolyte, but it's all inconsequential. Yeah, yeah. And yet, you do spend a lot of a, a lot of film time establishing exactly what those characters are like, especially yeah. Wizard. Yeah, I don't. I, don't, I, I think it's une- uneconomical with its screen time. It is very odd, isn't it? Much as I love Bowie's performance and the numbers he gets, I don't think Vendis Partners should dominate the middle section of the film as much no. as he does. And then to almost disappear, really. Yeah. Yeah. Which is inevitable because there's no reason why a character like Partners should be present when the chaos he has engendered finally goes off. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, I guess I guess there's a when you've got a a budget of eight point four million dollars. Yeah, you're going to have spent quite a significant proportion of that getting Bowie. Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> So, um, I guess you kind of, you know, the, they always say, don't they, the filmmaker, the budget should be seen in front of the camera. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. And Bowie's the money here. Yeah. yeah. So, I think the, the other, the last thread that we haven't pulled is the one I made a gag about at the beginning, which is this film's role in the collapse of Goldcrest, which was the, the great white hope of the British film industry in the early 80s. It was linked with Chariots of Fire at a time when every film producer in the world had turned that down. That became an Oscar-winning success. Absolute beginners often gets a lot of the blame for the collapse of Goldcrest, but when you look at news reports at the time, it was already in critical trouble by then. They'd had three films they'd released. The first one that was out was The Mission with Robert De Niro, which, mm-hmm. huge critical success, won the Palme d'Or, nominated for Oscars, critics loved it. Box office-wise, it tanked. People forget that now because it was so acclaimed, but they lost a shed load of money on the mission. Yeah. Second film out, Revolution, starring Al Pacino, which, you know, uh, Hugh Hudson's follow-up to Chariots of Fire uh, had all of the same box office problems as the mission, uh, except critics hated it as well. So an, an absolute disaster in every conceivable way. <laughs> And the last roll of the dice is Absolute Beginners, which, yeah, okay, also a critical and commercial failure, but really, it's the mission and revolution that wiped it out. People don't like to admit that because people think the British film industry should be making films like the mission and revolution. But, you know, Absolute Beginners is not the sole fingerprint on the murder weapon we're talking about here. Yeah, Um, it's... It's a bit like, mm. it's a bit like when you feel a bit ill on a Sunday morning, right? Yeah. And you go into the toilet every 15 minutes, right? 
Yeah. Uh, and it's 50-50 as to which end you, you're going to attend to, right? <laughs> yes. Goldcrest a... by this stage of the 80s absolutely have the cinematic equivalent of the shits. Yeah. Yes, let's and establish it, that. Yeah. So it's, it's, like, it's like the cause of their malaise is the 18 pints of lager they had earlier on Saturday night. Yes. But absolute beginners is the chicken vindaloo that finished them off and that they're blaming <laughs> for the whole thing. <laughs> Perfect. Yep, can't put it any better than that. I think that's... Uh, I think that's, that, that's a wrap. I can't take it any further. If anyone wants to hear any of that uh, insightful vindaloo-based criticism elsewhere, Mick, just remind them where they can find you. <laughs> So as I said at the start, listeners, I am uh, I can also be found on the website Horrified and on the Geek Show's own website, where I am a regular contributor. Uh, Mick can be found on Behold, Four Panel, uh, and uh, I think you, you also do occasional written bits for the Geek Show, don't you? Uh, less than I used to, but yes. Yeah, when you can. Um, And that's been your lot from Pop Screen, the Geek Show's dedicated podcast about movies by, about, or starring pop stars. We'll be back next week with another episode, but until then, I've been Graham. I've been Mick. We'll see you next week. seems like kids these days aren't going through an awkward stage. It's really not fair because Lord knows we did. So what were you like as a kid? Well, closeted. I didn't understand my vagina. I was psychotic. <laughs> I was out of my mind. But hey, if there's one thing that connects us all, that just brings people together, it's our cringe. Yes. It's being cringy. This is Awkward Stage, the podcast that dives into the most embarrassing moments from the most awkward stages of our life. I'm Nicole. And I'm Alina. And we're your hosts and the trusted guides to draw the deeply buried cringe out of each of our wonderfully awkward guests. New episodes every Wednesday. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, the trailer's ending, so just say something not awkward. Okay. I love you. Perfect. Perfect.